Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 14, where we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning. It'll be in John chapter 14, the first six verses of that chapter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. There should be one within arm's reach of you on the back of the pew or the chair in front of you. That's put there for you to use today. It'll be super helpful for you and for me as the one who'll be teaching you to to know that it's open in front of you so that you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, But we'd also love for you to take it with you uh, after today. It's our gift to you. And we'd love to, to continue talking to you about what this Bible says about God and what he's done for us. That's going to be our subject for the rest of the time together this morning. In John chapter 14, um, Jesus offers us help with one of the most basic human struggles. You might call it fear. You might call it anxiety. You might call it worry. Jesus here refers to it as a troubled heart. But whatever you might call it, I know you've experienced it. Seems like everywhere I look, I see people today talking about an anxiety epidemic in the modern world. They like to talk about different things that are unique to our time and place. The effect of social media on us. I've seen that as a main reason for the the, the surging levels of reported anxiety. Uh, Loneliness. Is something that's often chalked up as a reason. Economic struggles, things are not great out there. Good reason to worry about whether we'll have what we need if we're just looking at the patterns happening, playing out around us. The expectation that we perform, always perform, always perform, it's strong, it's deep in the culture, and it feeds this sense of anxiety. I've seen all of those things talked about as reasons for these surging numbers of people who are reporting for care, asking for help with anxiety. And I think there's probably something to all of them. But I also think, whatever you want to call it, anxiety, worry, fear, troubled heart, the bedrock experience behind those labels is just basic to being human. Part of the glory and the misery of being human is our ability to think big to imagine what we want and what we don't want for ourselves and for our futures, that ability combined with this frustrating inability to control all the things that affect us. Our reach is just a lot more limited than our dreams or our nightmares. And that's a recipe for worry or for what Jesus refers to in John 14 as a troubled heart. The the, the command at the center of this little text we're going to consider this morning is this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And if we're honest, that's one of those commands that can seem a little bit irritating, can't it? Isn't that kind of like blaming the victim? I mean, if you've got any experience with worry, you know you don't ask for it and you don't enjoy it and you'd really like to not have to be dealing with it at that time. And then to have someone come in over that and tell you not to feel what you're feeling, that can feel like just one layer too much in this burden you're carrying on your shoulders. It doesn't get any easier to to, to think about this command if you think about who it is that he's commanding. I mean, these guys that he's talking to had really good reasons to worry. Think about what these men had left behind. Most of them had families as far as we know. Some of their families are mentioned in the text. They left wives and children behind. 
Who's providing for them while they're off wandering around with Jesus all over the place? They left careers behind? And now, after, after they've given up so much to follow Jesus, what had once seemed like following him through miracle after miracle after miracle has now started looking like following him through threat after rising threat after rising threat. Because wherever they go now, people are talking about taking him out. The disciples didn't even want to be here in Jerusalem. They tried to convince Jesus not to come. They knew he was a marked man. And if their leader was a marked man, what does that mean for them? And and honestly, whether they were putting those pieces together in this moment or not, whether that was what was on their mind, Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen to these guys. He knows that after he leaves, most of these men will actually be killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. These men had reasons to be worried. And Jesus looks at them, knowing who he's talking to, and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It could seem, under circumstances like that, a little bit cruel to add an impossible standard to all that these guys already had to worry about. Like they're out there just treading water, trying to keep their heads above, and he's just thrown them a bowling ball, asking to hold it for them while they're at it. But, but, it could seem like that. But, Jesus doesn't stop there. In these first six verses, Jesus gives a command, and then he tells them what they need to know to embrace it. Jesus doesn't mean to add to their burden, but to relieve it. He doesn't mean to condemn them for their worry, but to free them from it. He tells them in these verses, he tells us what to do with it. And he offers real help. He doesn't talk up their capacities and tell them they've got it. They've got this, you can handle it. He doesn't talk down what they're facing as if it's no big deal. He takes them instead to the one and only source of peace that can weather any storms. Jesus takes their eyes, he grabs their faces and points them in the direction he wants them to look. Three things that he wants them to look to that I want to show you this morning. With their troubled hearts, he wants them to look to God. With their troubled hearts, he wants them to look to heaven. And with their troubled hearts, he wants them to look Jesus to himself. Let me read these verses before we get into them together. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in chapter 14, verse 1, and read through verse 6. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Jesus takes this room full of troubled friends and points them in three directions. First of all, he tells them and tells us, look to God. As soon as he's told them not to be troubled, the next words out of his mouth are a call to believe in God. And when he tells them this, he's going right at one of the most common sources of our worry in life. One of the most common sources of our worry in life is recognizing that we actually aren't up to whatever it is that we're facing. When we know we don't have what it takes, when we can tell our strength is too limited, we worry. Sometimes we're tempted to comfort ourselves when we realize this with two other sources of comfort. Neither of them will work. One source of comfort we'll sometimes look to is maybe we'll play up what we bring to the table. Or if we're comforting a friend, we'll play up what they bring to the table for whatever it is that they're facing. We'll emphasize the strengths and the resources that someone does actually have. We'll tell them, you're enough, you've got this. You're stronger than you realize. And, and you know what? Sometimes that is what we need to hear. Because for any number of reasons, we can get down on ourselves and look past the abilities God gave us when he made us. That's not good. That actually doesn't honor him as our maker who intended to give us capacities that honor him when we use them. Sometimes it is right to remind people of their agency and capacity as God-given gifts for the situations God brings into our lives. It isn't good to deny that, but that cannot be the main source of your security. It will not work. In fact, many times... This strategy for dealing with worry, playing up what you bring to the table, actually just feeds the problem that we're trying to solve. Because the more control you think you're able to have over whatever affects your life, the more you're going to feel like you ought to control whatever affects your life, the more you're going to feel like, I'm the one who's in charge here. It's really fundamentally on me. Recently, I read a really interesting little book by a sociologist named Hermit Rosa called The Uncontrollability of the World. He's talking about the fact that modern people are able to know and to influence so much more about their lives compared to people even 50 or 100 years ago. But, but what he's really talking about is that this advantage that we have, this advantage that we have, all this knowledge and influence... It actually hasn't made the world controllable. It's still fundamentally uncontrollable for us. And instead of making the world controllable, what it's really done is make us feel more burdened. When you feel like you're supposed to be on top of something, uncontrollability feeds insecurity, actually. One of his most interesting examples is he cites these studies of people who've installed lots of security equipment around their houses. You know, cameras to watch who's coming and going and lights that are activated by people moving nearby and fences that that ward off potential threats. He cites studies where people are interviewed who have these security devices all around their homes. They actually report feeling less secure. The more you think you're in charge, 
the more insecure you feel when you know you can't actually control everything. So when you're feeling that your power isn't enough for what you're facing, playing up what you bring to the table isn't going to calm your troubled heart. It actually might make things worse. That's why Jesus doesn't point them to look within. He doesn't tell them, you got this. Here's another common way of, 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 of dealing with worry that won't work. Another common option would be to look closer at what you're facing and play down the circumstances that have you worried. Maybe not playing up your ability, but playing down the seriousness of what's got you bothered. Telling yourself or telling a friend, it's really not as bad as it looks. Everything will be fine. Don't sweat it. I I mean, again, in, in some cases, that can be good. That can be the right thing to do. Some of us, some of you maybe, have a a fear of flying that you can't shake. Every time you get on a plane, you're worried that that plane is going to go down. And you know, just looking at the plane, that's really not unreasonable. It's a huge piece of metal. How does that thing hang in the air? How does it get fast enough to go up? How does it stay up once it's up? How does it get down without crashing into the ground? It, It makes sense at one level to be concerned about flying. But you could comfort somebody with the stats. Something like one in 11 million chance that something's going to go wrong for you when you hop on that plane. The numbers don't support that kind of fear. It's not that bad. Don't sweat it. Sometimes that makes sense as an encouragement. But that's not good enough either, not ultimately. Because a lot of times what you're facing really is that bad. (laughs) A lot of times what you're facing may actually be even worse than you realize. Certainly in this case, in this room, where Jesus was talking to these specific people, the situation they were in was way worse than they realized at this point. That's why Jesus doesn't put their focus around them. He doesn't, t- he doesn't direct them to look more closely at what they're facing and say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. He doesn't chop it down to size. He doesn't take them from their troubled hearts into their inner resources and say, you've got this. And he doesn't take them from their troubled hearts back out into the circumstances around them and say, it's not that big of a deal. You've got this. He takes them instead to God who isn't limited like they are. Because Jesus knows what we have to know if we want to have any freedom from the worry that we will always struggle with. The fear of the Lord is the only sure antidote to fear about anything else. That's it. The fear of the Lord is the only sure antidote to fear about anything else. Guys, I know that sometimes it can sound a little bit dismissive when someone is dealing with worry and you tell them to believe in God. Problem solved. We all know that worry and anxiety has, comes from all sorts of factors. That our bodies are involved, sometimes genetics can be involved, that traumatic experience can be involved, and sometimes it can feel like someone is honest about dealing with anxiety, you tell them, believe in God, as if an idea could fix what they're dealing with. As if a Bible verse makes it better. As if what you're doing is handing them a chapter from a theology textbook. I get that that can feel off. But Jesus knows what we are all so often tempted to forget. God isn't a chapter 
in a theology textbook. He is not an idea. He is not reducible to the verses that talk about him. He is a person who's alive, who's not limited like we are, who controls what we don't control, and who is near to those who call on him. He's real. And there is no more relevant truth in the world than that one. It's not dismissive to tell someone to believe in God when they're worried any more than it would be dismissive to tell a person whose house is on fire to believe in the fireman who's knocking on the door with a hose in his hand. That guy's real. He's got exactly what you need. He's here. He can help you. Maybe it would be dismissive to lecture them in that situation on the importance of fire safety. Or the importance of, say, a well-organized and effective fire service in a municipal location like ours. But it's never dismissive to talk to the one in need of help about the one who can help them. To speak to the one whose strength is tapped out or whose reach has fallen short. That there's someone else right here who has the strength you need. Who isn't tapped out. Who wants to help you. The fear of the Lord has to be the center of every response to the fear of anything else. And we want our church to be a community of care, don't we? Where we're sharing burdens and fears with one another. We're not afraid to be honest when we are worried, when anxiety is a struggle for us. We want that for our church. We want people with quick to listen ears, asking good questions and bringing no shame to the person who's struggling. But for our community of care to be a community of, of actual care, of actual help, we have to be committed to hearing what we're struggling with and letting that drive us back to the one who's there, who really wants to help us. And we have to fight hard to use this tool that Jesus is putting in our hands in this text. When we're the ones who need the encouragement, and when we're the one who's struggling with worry, we need to check our hearts and make sure that what we really want when we come to our friends with honesty about what we feel is a reminder to believe in God. This is what we need to ask for. We need to be asking that others will pray for us that will believe in God when we have a hard time believing Him. We need to ask others to remind us why we can believe in Him. We need to invite encouragement to fear the Lord into the care we're asking for from our friends. And on the giving end of this kind of care, we've got to be willing to go here where Jesus does and resist the urge that all of us will feel to fix the problem our friend has brought to us. I am, I am so struck in reading where Jesus goes with his, with his friend's troubled hearts. I'm so struck by how often I tend to go to encouragement about somebody's capacity when they bring a problem to me, something they're worried about, or perspective about the circumstances they're facing. How often my instinct is to say, you, you've got this, or it's not that bad. We have to believe that God is what our friends really need. And that God is available to them, to, to all of us, moment by moment. How often do you find yourself going here 
with your friends. Jesus tells them, tells us, first of all, look to God. Look to God. Secondly, Jesus tells them, he tells us, look to heaven. In verse 2, Jesus is getting at another common source of our anxiety. I think this one was probably the most important factor for the troubled hearts of his disciples in this moment. He speaks to them in verse 2 about the future. And he speaks to those who aren't sure what's going to happen. A lot of times when we worry, it's because we don't know what's going to happen. And we were worried that we won't like it. I mentioned this before. Humans, we just live in a kind of no man's land that's unique to our species. We have the ability to think about and dream about and stress about the long term. We can imagine things that we don't want. We can imagine things we do want, and we can imagine those things way in advance. That is not a burden a gazelle has to carry out on the savannah. I I guess the gazelle knows a little bit about fear. They have an instinct that is activated when they catch a glimpse in their peripheral vision of yellow fur coming at them. He's got an instinct to run for his life in a situation like that. Maybe you could call that worry. But there's no gazelle out there worrying about the effects of one or another schooling option on its kids long term. And I don't know any gazelle that's ever worried about what kind of people his kids will become 10 or 20 years down the line. I don't think any gazelle is ever worried about how expensive gas will get before it tops out and starts coming back down again. Or how he'll make room in his fixed income for costs that are anything but fixed right now. Our hearts are troubled all the time by the fact that we don't know what will happen to us in a world where we know awful things often do happen to people. And that is definitely going on with the disciples. And in verses 2 and 3, Jesus speaks directly to it. He tells them, your future is sure. We read these verses with me again. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let me tell you what Jesus is talking about and why. Jesus, right here, is talking about heaven. That's what the Bible refers to it as, heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about what the Bible has in mind as God's end game for God's world. A place that is renewed and restored and set free from the burdens of sin and sorrow and death. That's what Jesus is talking about. The problem is, We've never experienced a world like that one. And heaven can just seem so, so abstract to us. Especially compared to all the very, very real things we struggle with here and now. Our concerns, our worries, what, we're, what we are facing, what we might face, those things are not abstract. 
They are real, real concrete and tangible. Compared to that, heaven can sometimes seem difficult to imagine or understand or love and long for. And that's what's so helpful about what Jesus is doing here. He is giving them and us an image we can connect with for the future he is promising us. Jesus describes heaven as a kind of home in these verses. What makes up a home? When Jesus talks about his father's house, he's not just talking about, don't don't, don't think of the mansion element, the bling, how much gold will be there and what jewels and what have you. That's, That's not where he wants your focus. He wants it on a place you can count on, a shelter from the storm, security that's available to you where there's plenty of room and no threat to worry about. You need a shelter, you need a house to make a home. But from there, he goes to who will be in this home. He says, I am going to prepare it, but then I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to take you there, and there you'll be with me. All of you will be with me. To make a home, what you need is a place you can count on and the people that matter most. Jesus' picture in heaven is a home like that. A place you belong in, where you know what to expect, where everything's where it's supposed to be, where you're known and expected and provided for by the people you care about most. Recently, uh, recently we've been watching uh, the most recent season of a reality show called Alone. I think I mentioned that show. It's got a lot of good sermon illustration material in this reality show. Uh, it's on a history channel, and it's where they take this group of trained survivalists, very experienced. They warn you not to do this at home. They drop them in some sort of exotic but barren location and see who can last the longest. They have very little gear, and only their wits to rely on to find food and shelter and all the things they'll need to make a home or life for themselves for as long as they can make it out there. You know what they do first when they get out there? If they have any chance of success and any real experience. In other words, if they watched any of the previous seasons of the show before they went out there on their own turn. The first thing they do when they get there is they start working on a shelter. Often before they even find any food for themselves, they're putting a roof over their heads, not just so that they can keep dry, And not just so they have walls around their bed so that the bears or the wolverines at least have to work for it before they eat them. It isn't just about being dry and being protected, though it's certainly those things. It's also a place that they know they can come back to after wandering around looking for berries all day. They want a place that feels like theirs. That's the result of their hands doing what they wanted. They'll even spend all this exorbitant time making furniture that they like. One of them even strung up strings between two poles to make himself a little mattress to lay on. Sometimes they'll put a shelf on the wall and trinkets that they make or things that they find that they think are cool around their site. Why would they do that? Because humans need a place. That's just how we work. We long for that. They don't make it very long if they don't have one. But you know when it comes time to tap out? Some of the people who've tapped out on this show have had the best shelters I've ever seen. Awesome shelters. But you know why they tap? It isn't because they're afraid of the bears. It isn't because they're wet. Sometimes it's because they're hungry. But you know the biggest reason? They're alone. They don't like that. Starts out as a vacation from all the 
work they had to do at home for their kids or what have you. But, but before long, they'll start talking to their cameras about missing their kid's birthday or how much they miss sitting on the couch reading next to their spouse or whatever. They start talking about the people in their life. And you know, as the viewer, if you've seen even one season before, okay, they're gone. They're gone. They are not going to make it out of this episode. It is a basic human longing to have a place you can count on with the people you care about most. And Jesus is taking what we can connect with, what we all know we want, and saying, that's where you're going. A place you can count on. My father's house. There is no more stable and wonderful place than that. And I'll be with you there. He's picturing their future as a home that is rock solid and guaranteed. Why? Why does he take them there? It's because he wants the security and the peace of that certain future to shape how they experience the instability and the sorrow that they're about to go through. He wants their minds on their true home for as long as they're not home yet. That's what Jesus wanted for them. And that's exactly what the earliest Christians were known for experiencing in their very difficult lives as followers of Jesus. The next generation of Christians, the ones that that these guys who were listening to Jesus right here, the next generation that would come from these men, from their ministry, living in this same city or in this same region, we know what their lives were like because we have the letter to the Hebrews. Earlier this week, I was with some, some friends here as one of our summer studies, walking through verse by verse what the, the author of this letter to the Hebrews had to say to Hebrew Christians, descendants of these men Jesus was speaking to on this night. And in chapter 10, he's encouraging them with what he's seen of their faith under really difficult circumstances. This letter was written to coach up people who were literally losing everything because they were with Jesus. You know what he tells them when he reminds them about their own experience in chapter 10? He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Somebody came in and raided your shelter and you were happy about it. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Then in chapter 11, he reminded him that this kind of faith, this is your legacy. He takes him through character after character from the Old Testament who lived like this. He reminds them that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they lived their whole lives in tents with their eyes on God's promise. This is what he says. They were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They lived here on earth as he he calls them strangers and exiles, people without a home here, people without a place to count on here. Because, verse 14 of chapter 11, they were seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, see, what, what Jesus knows, what these early Christians would then demonstrate, what we're called to remember, 
is that you, you can really endure anything in this life when you know that nothing can touch the home where you really belong. And when your eyes and your heart are set on that untouchable home, it is an unbelievably powerful protection against worry about what might happen along the way. Friends, in a world like ours, that's so full of uncertainty and change and decay, there are not many things out there as practical as a clear view of heaven. It's not escapist. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's not escapist to put your eyes onto heaven. It's not putting your head in the sand and ignoring the real life, real world problems around you. No, heaven is how you live with and face up to the real world problems that are going on around you. It's how you charge yourself up to care for others who are experiencing those real problems in the world around you. Heaven is the most practical tool you've got for dealing with the real challenges you're going to live with. For peace now, you need confidence about then. That's why Jesus goes here. And if you find yourself, friends, often thinking about the future, if you often find yourself burdened by all the things you can't predict and can't control and can't prevent, the most practical way for you to push back or to push through is to meditate often on heaven. Jesus tells them to look to God, then he tells them to look to their future, to heaven. And finally, Jesus tells them and us to look to Jesus. His final bit of encouragement in this text begins with a moment of confusion. This time it's, it's Thomas who speaks up rather than Peter. Jesus has told them, you know the way where I'm going, their future home. Thomas is like, uh, uh, no, actually, we don't. We don't even know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Thomas is experiencing something that's probably my most frequent temptation to worry, like not knowing what to do. I'm not super risk averse. I don't tend to think worst case scenario about the future, maybe to a fault. But I do get troubled in heart when I'm facing something and I'm not sure where to go with it. I don't know what's the right step to take. I, I lack wisdom. That gets to me. Maybe you can relate. Thomas certainly can. How are we going to end up in this place you've promised us if we don't even know what to do now? Because this secure and untouchable future Jesus is talking about, it's only good news if you know how to get there. This is the right question that Thomas is asking. And with his answer, Jesus gives us our third crucial tool in our fight against worry. He puts their attention and ours squarely on him. Verse 6, one of the most clear and crucial statements about who Jesus is you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way to this certain and wonderful future, this untouchable, unlosable home, it's Jesus himself. This way is not a path that you walk on. It is a vehicle that you ride in. And you know the way, Jesus is saying, because you know me. Think back a couple of verses. Jesus says to them that he's going to prepare a place for them. What does that mean? It's not that he's got to go and add on a couple new rooms to the house to make sure there's, there's a place for them to sleep. The place already exists. 
He's not saying, I got to go wash the sheets, make sure they're freshened up and ready for you. I'll fluff the pillows while I'm at it so you'll be comfortable. His preparing a place is not like a, a, a new parent swapping over a home office into a nursery and getting the paint all right and the crib installed. He doesn't have to get the space ready. It's there. But it is not a place for sinners like you and me. It's not a place open to us until Jesus goes to prepare. He has to open the doors, and that's exactly what he's about to do through the cross that he dies on, through the resurrection that he rises through. He gives up his life to make them, to make us washed and ready for his father's house. He is the way because only he goes through death and resurrection so that we can go through him. And what does that mean? It means that if you are not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet trusted Jesus with your life, you must, you must. He is the way. And the reason he is the way, not a way, has everything to do with where he's going, where he's taking us. Often we can think about religions as one or another way to, to, to find a good life in the world. To learn better about how to treat other people so that there's more peace amongst us. To get wisdom that we need for making good decisions along the way. And there is no question, you'll find that in Christianity and in a bunch of other religions out there. If that's what religion is, it's kind of like typing in an address and getting several different options from Google Maps about how to get there. We just want to get there, but there's different ways. Christianity, is at the heart of it, is this claim that what we, we need something far more than that. We need something to which there is only one way. Last summer, our family had the chance to travel to Washington, D.C. and see some of the sites in our nation's capital. My youngest son got super into the Washington Monument. He loved that thing. He was spotting it everywhere. All over the city, he could always find where it was whether from different perspectives in real time or on every t-shirt and every Christmas ornament that we passed at every souvenir shop. One day we decided we were going to go tour it. We got to get there. We got to see it for ourselves. So we type in the address and we got like five different ways to get there. Combining different metro, bus, taxi options. Here's how you could do it from Uber. Here's how you could walk it if you're up for a long walk. Lots of different ways to get to the site. But once we got there, we wanted to get to the top. We wanted the view. And when we arrived, we were not given four different ways to get up there. We were given an elevator, take it or leave it. To get up that high, there is only one lift to get the job done. And for the Father's house we're longing for, a secure and certain future nothing can touch, there is one and only way to get to it. It's Jesus. And if you're trusting in Jesus today and find yourself worried about whatever it may be, what you need to know is to keep looking to him. Because Jesus is the one who brings all this comfort together. In, chapter, in verse 2, Jesus has said, believe in God, believe in God. But did you know what he said next? Believe also in me. You want to know you can trust God? 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. You see, Jesus and God's goodness and trustworthiness is more tangible than any other possible source of confirmation. But you still might say, I want to trust God, but I don't know where God is taking me. I don't know what he's doing with my life. Sometimes God's people have a terrible road to walk. Jesus is about to be killed in obedience to God. Most of these guys will be too. What if, what if, what if I'm looking to a God who plans to bring pain into my future? I don't want that then you need to know here is God's agenda for your life. His agenda is to give you a home beyond the reach of all the pain of this world. Your future, Jesus says, is with me. Where I will be, you will be too. Look to Jesus. Jesus is your future. And then we might say, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know if I have the strength to make it. Well, then we need to look to Jesus and hear him say, I am the way. It is me. It's all me. I go to prepare the place, but I won't ask you to follow me. I'll come get you. I'll carry you there. You will get there through me. Not behind me, as one person put it. Not beside me. Not behind me following along. Not beside me helping him along. But through me. And if it cost Jesus as much as it cost him to prepare that place for us, do you really think he wouldn't come back for you to make sure you get there? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Take your troubled heart there. Look to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see him in his glory, hearts that trust him no matter what it is we're facing. And we pray that through him, you would make good on this promise to bring us all home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.